Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. Let's start with the culture wars. In the past 24 hours, the battlefield has been noisy. More battles about books in the classroom, drama over drag shows, and gaslighting about gas stoves. Here is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis this morning, surrounded by and taking urgent action to protect gas stoves. They are trying to take away your gas stove. They are coming for any little thing in your life that they can do. And I think what they want to be able to do is they ultimately want to control the amount of energy you consume. Well, it turns out that 92 percent of Floridians use electric stoves, but let's not let that get in the way. What is this really about? Well, Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders spelled it out. We are under attack in a left wing culture war we didn't start and never wanted to fight. Hmm, Sure seems like some people do want this fight. But what's the truth about culture war rhetoric? We'll talk about why these messages are so powerful and why even some Democrats are warning about wokeness. Plus, you remember the Southwest Airlines meltdown over the holidays? Well, now we have an alarming glimpse into what was going on behind the scenes while passengers were stranded, including a message sent to a cockpit computer asking, who's flying this plane? We have a preview of a Senate hearing about all of this tomorrow. What can Congress do to make flying less nerve-wracking for all of us? And the suspect in the Dallas Zoo animal thefts has allegedly admitted to stealing two tamarind monkeys and trying to steal a snow leopard. He also reportedly told police he wants to take more animals if he gets out of jail. Jeff Corwin is here tonight to talk about our obsession with exotic animals. So there's a lot going on tonight. And here with me in studio, we have former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang, CNN political commentator Van Jones, and conservative lawyer George Conway. Guys, I don't just talk about the news. I walk while talking <laughs> hey, about the news. Okay, yeah. That's harder than that's, it looks. Thank you. That's harder than it looks. Thank you, Van. <laughs> I appreciate you knowing that. Um, guys, great to see you. Um, George, is a woke mob coming to take my gas stove? I'm scared. <laughs> I, you should be terrified. I am terrified. I, I, absolutely. I mean, it, what are you going? How are you going to cook? I mean, are you going to have to light a. You're going to have to light a match or something. And uh, that's a gas stove. Oh. With an electric stove, you just turn it on. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe someday they'll have these things with like rays or something that will zap your food and make it warm or something. I'm glad you're taking. You're Science seeing fiction. the yeah. levity in all of this because Governor DeSantis is not, and so Governor DeSantis has just enacted um, like tax free. You can buy a gas stove now tax free because he thinks that the woke mob or he's claiming that the woke mob is coming to take your gas stove. How have we gotten here? I have no idea. Honestly, <laughs> I, I, it's just completely insane. It's just they can't talk about any real issues anymore. They can't talk about, you know, they want to talk about a limited government. They don't talk about that anymore because they don't actually want limited government. They, you know, before the quarter of the national debt was 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 created during the Trump administration, even before COVID, a lot of it was. 
And so they can't really talk about that. So, you know, and then, and then they, they don't really have a coherent, I mean, the most, the sensible Republicans agree with Democrats on foreign policy with regard to Ukraine and then the lunatics support Russia. I mean, they don't want to talk about that. So what else is there to talk about? Gas stoves, um, bathrooms, um, uh, 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 People like uh, George Santos, who, who who dresses in drag, I guess. I mean, you know, I mean, we'll get, he, he's he, <laughs> he's mixes, he mixes metaphors, and yeah. we will get to, him, we'll get to in, him in a moment. But I do feel like the last twenty four hours, particularly the governor um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders' retort, was. I mean, the culture war was loud, as I said last night. What did you hear? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, last night uh, uh, we've had our president Biden remind us, and the Republicans remind us why so many people voted for Joe Biden. Biden was talking about real stuff. He was talking about economic issues. He was talking about bringing people together. And the, the Republican Party, both the people who were screaming and yelling and making a, you know, a mockery of our process, and even uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, were all about division and, and culture war. And I do think it's because what else do they have to talk about? Uh, we have uh, an economy that is healing. It's moving forward. Uh, 500,000 jobs created just last month, uh, 12 million jobs in two years. Uh, you know, we've got a bunch of problems, but the Democrats have been trying to solve those problems. And what are you going to say? You're going to start uh, uh, picking on uh, these complete nonsense issues. Nobody's coming for anybody's gas stoves, but we're talking about it, and that's what they want. Um, here was an interesting moment, I thought, um, Andrew, last night, where Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders talked about the woke mob and how President Biden has dealt with it. And he's the first man to surrender his presidency to a woke mob that can't even tell you what a woman is. The dividing line in America is no longer between right or left. The choice is between normal or crazy. So, Andrew, the idea that she's painting an 80-year-old white grandfather as, you know, susceptible to the woke mob, does that fly with people? Does that resonate with people? Well, the playbook has been to caricature the other party by its most extreme wing, uh, and it's been working on on both sides. I do want to take a moment to acknowledge my man, Van Jones. It's been too long, Van. It's rush hour again well, here at back. CNN. Welcome I back. saw I saw you guys um, having a man yeah. hug behind, yeah. backstage, we, and I saw you. There was a lot of I know, I know, I did too. But there was a lot of affection happening yeah, here. I love so. this guy. But but it, it's it's a function of how polarized the country is, where about half of Democrats regard Republicans as corrupt and a threat to the country. Republicans feel the same way about Democrats. And so if you want to score points, it's a lot easier to say, look at these uh, these folks and their, their loony beliefs and then beat them up. And it's amplified and augmented by social media, where you can have that video and that claim, and then it just gets a ton of likes uh, and it, it gins up energy online. I also felt the Governor Huckabee was trying to um, claw back the use of the term crazy mm. because she's not she wasn't referring to George Santos or Marjorie Taylor Greene, or QAnon, or any of the insurrectionists. Yeah. She was trying to take crazy. I mean, th- that's the word that has been used by, as you know, Democrats for all of that. And she was, I think, trying to, like, take it back. And look, you saw both parties doing that as well. In other words, I think people have seen the Democratic Party as being this party of sort of elite, you know, kale eaters or whatever. And so you had, you know, uh, Joe Biden talking about, you know, corporations ripping us off and the, the hotel fees and the air uh, uh, fees. But I thought it was really unfortunate because, you know, I know Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Uh, she's she's a, a warm person. Uh, she's a smart person. Uh, she just became governor of Arkansas. Arkansas needs real leadership to bring people together. And she had an opportunity to show that side of herself. And instead, 
she's, you know, chasing the crazies off the cliff, calling all of us crazy. And I just, there's something going wrong uh, when someone like her, who we, I, I know she knows better, did that. They're doing it because it's a winning message. And the fact is, I thought Joe Biden had a great night last night, but he did the same thing, where he just pointed out a few Republican uh, extreme views and say, oh, look, they're, you know, they're going to take away your Social Security and Medicare. And not like, do, does every Republican think that? No. Are there a few people there that do? So for each party, it's uh, a winning tact just to say, look, look at these folks. And they're trapped within a two-party system where, frankly, in my view, uh, each party should probably be uh, two parties at least within itself. Mm. On the flip side, George, um, you know, there are people, Democrats, in, including liberals, who are starting to say that wokeness is getting them in trouble and going too far. Yeah. And it's a great talking point for the right. And so here's Nicholas Kristof a week ago in his column saying, I fear that our linguistic contortions, however well-meaning, aren't actually addressing our country's desperate inequities or achieving progressive dreams, but rather are creating fuel for right-wing leaders aiming to take the country in the opposite direction. Have we reached the tipping point with that? I don't know if we've reached the tipping point, but there's absolutely, there is truth in that. I mean, for example, the word Latinx, which I don't even know how to say. Right? <laughs> you know, said it right. It, it, I said it right. The first, the first thing that, that Sarah, Sarah Sanders did as governor was to ban the word Latinx in, in, in Arkansas state documents. And it's like, that's really stupid. But on the other hand, people of Latinos or Hispanics or what, I don't know what the phrase of the day will be. They don't like the phrase either. So why are we using it? Why are people trying to use it? I mean, it's a, it's a sort of an offshoot of craziness on college campuses. But the problem, the problem is that the Republicans want to make everything about this stuff. The Democrats really don't. There are a few, yes, I mean, there's a left, there's a left wing cadre in the Democratic Party um, that, you know, that, that, that does all this stuff. But most are not, this is not, I guess, like Joe Biden's speech. It wasn't, wasn't anything about that. Well, that's my point. Republicans he's have the, nothing else to talk about. I mean, he's hardly, well, I, I don't mean to, I don't want to disparage anybody. News here, Allison. But he, he's uh, a 80-year-old white <laughs> grandfather. Is he the personification of wokeness that well, Governor Huckabee Sanders was talking about? Well, well he's obviously not, but frankly, uh, most of the other people in the party are not. Uh, I mean, look, look at a Hakeem Jeffries. I mean, he's, uh, you know, African-American, he's progressive, but he is incredibly, relentlessly pragmatic trying to get certain things done. And so, you know, I, I, I agree with what Andrew is saying. Uh, there does seem to be a premium on pointing to the extremism of the, of the other side and trying to score those kind of points. But I tell you who loses out. Who loses out is just regular Americans who are trying to get their problems solved. And, you, and we yeah. wind up with this sort of nonsense. Of course, because nobody, well, n- nobody I know is worried about their gas stove being killed <laughs> by a, a woke mom. I mean, there's just other issues right now. But do you agree with George that, that you know, there's a, there, the pendulum has swung perhaps too far in the woke direction and that the, you know. Yes. Repul- yeah. <laughs> the pendulum has swung too far in both directions. Well, I mean, I think the, overre- the overreaction on the right is, is worse than some of the, the wokeness on the left. I mean, the wokeness, I, you know, I can do without some yeah. of it, but, but the craziness, the obsession. Yeah, and there, there, there's, there's no comparison between like white nationalism and that sort of stuff Absolutely. and some of the silly stuff on the campuses. But th- this is a winning argument because the vast majority of Americans actually do feel that language policing and political correctness has gone too far, and a majority of Democrats feel the same way. I think because it's easy, Andrew. I think it's easy. It's easy to get your head around this. It's not so easy to get your head around what are we supposed to do about trade with China it's and the cyber food. war. It's easy to get China. me mad. Yeah. And so it's easy to go, oh, Latinx, that's bad. Well, but part of the problem is that the country's become polarized 
along educational lines. And, and so a lot of this stuff is essentially proxy for like, look at the elitist coastal liberals and their uh, language innovations and their anti-gas stove and the and rest Joe of it. And Joe Biden talks to, about that all the time. I mean, yeah. Joe Biden talks about how we can't, you know, we, we can't just be a college culture and that we need to have great jobs that, you know, for people who didn't go to college. I mean, that's but something think, that does resonate, right, with people? Uh, sure. I think that the, the worst part about it is not what we talked about. The worst part about it is you do have people who spend so much time trying to come up with the best possible term for the unhoused. You can't call them homeless, you gotta call them unhoused. But we're not doing anything to help the people who actually are sleeping outdoors. And so sometimes you substitute on the left all of these contortions around language for actual work. I remember we, yeah. we should actually do real work <laughs> to help people as opposed to policing each other on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So I, I, think it's, I think on the one hand it gives uh, some people on the right uh, the opportunity to come after us. But I think it also becomes a distraction on the left. And that's where the real harm, I think, happens. Um, no, it, it's what you said, Allison. Like, the language is easy. It's easy to pick at. It's easy to try and enforce. You know, it's hard uh, actually getting people yeah. uh, in, into housing, a- addressing mental health crises, why are we like, whatever up that on problem that? is. I mean, and, but that, that's the problem is that now we're focused on the warring symbols and language instead of well, what's happening in our communities. That part. Okay, gentlemen, thank you very much. Great talking to you about all of that. Stick around, everybody. When we come back, we are going to talk about what's going on in our skies. There are new revelations tonight about just how bad the Southwest meltdown over the holidays was. And you don't want to miss this. We'll tell you which seat on the plane is safest. Tomorrow, Congress will dig into the Southwest Airlines Christmas travel debacle. The airline's COO plans to say that they, quote, messed up and are trying to make things right. But the head of the pilots union plans to come armed with new evidence of just how bad it was and how they say Southwest's operation is being held together with, quote, duct tape. Andrew Yang, Van Jones, George Conway are still with me, but let's bring in CNN's Gabe Cohen from D.C. Gabe, great to have you tonight. So what were the messages that the Southwest dispatchers were sending to pilots? I alluded to it in the open during this whole mess. Yeah, Allison, it's stunning. CNN has obtained this testimony that we're expecting from the pilots union tomorrow, and it includes those messages you're talking about that were sent by Southwest dispatchers to specific pilots on their cockpit computer, actually on board these flights. And they really paint an alarming picture of uh, the chaos that was happening behind the scenes during this meltdown. In one of those messages, uh, the dispatchers ask the pilots to identify themselves because it appears the airline didn't actually know who was on board amid all of those uh, crew scheduling problems. And the message then ends with, quote, it's a mess down here. And in another one of those messages, uh, dispatchers told the pilots, quote, no updates here. Scheduling is so far behind. We were told we aren't allowed to walk over and talk to them. Allison, it's just a snippet of what we'll hear tomorrow, but it really paints that picture of what pilots were dealing with while about 2 million passengers were stranded. So Gabe, what's, um, what's the union planning to say tomorrow at this hearing? Well, look, they're not expected to pull any punches. They are highly critical of Southwest system, saying in this testimony that uh, it's a complex operation held together by, as they put it, duct tape. Uh, and they say they've been warning about these systemic problems at Southwest and a looming crisis now for years, writing, quote, since 2011, Southwest has averaged one major operational failure every 18 months. They say warning signs were ignored. Poor performance was condoned. Excuses were made. Processes atrophied. 
core values were forgotten. Now, of course, the airline is going to dispute a lot of that, even though, as you mentioned, Allison, they are apologizing. They've been handing out those refunds, hundreds of millions of dollars. But you can expect the senators on the Transportation Committee are going to have some pretty pointed questions for their executive. Okay, Gabe Cohen, thank you very much for all the reporting and previewing what we're going to see tomorrow. Um, guys, I don't want my plane held together by duct tape. No. That doesn't make me feel good. Well, it's not the plane. It's the travel schedule. <laughs> if it makes you feel a little bit better. It doesn't. It doesn't. Because I also don't like when, it, when the air traffic controller or the dispatcher or whomever says to the pilot, who's flying this thing? Yeah, that seems That's, I mean, it's not good. But the point is... I think we've had Southwest Airlines employees on Mm -hmm. who've said that the system is woefully antiquated. Aren't we supposed to have robots uh, and modernization for things like this, Andrew? Well, the robots are just coming for our jobs, Allison. They're not not coming for for the dispatcher's jobs. Uh, So uh, I feel bad for, obviously, the millions of passengers uh, who who got stuck. We've all lived some version of that. It's, It's a nightmare. Uh, and I feel like what happened to Southwest is an emblem of them being in an environment where they, they were trying to cut corners and cut costs wherever they could. Um, their, uh, their culture is around customer service, yes, but also it's around trying to be really economical. And when you're trying to save money uh, quarter after quarter and try and turn in those results, something's going to end up uh, blowing up. And when it did blow up, unfortunately, it was these, these customers who were caught Thank God, thank goodness for the workers. That's what I have to say. That, it, you know, a lot of times you know, people, you know, they take a job, they have pride in their profession. They want to do a good job. Whether you're talking about, you know, uh, healthcare workers and HMOs who sometimes wind up being whistleblowers about bad practices there. Uh, but the, this union has been screaming and yelling for a long time, not just for their own wages, not because they, they want more benefits, they deserve that, but saying, this isn't safe, this isn't good. And I think we need to be a lot uh, stronger in supporting union voices uh, when they speak up. This is a, a, a massive number of people who are going to be whistleblowing tomorrow in front of the country. They deserve our support. Particularly when it's about the airline industry, when it's something yeah. that touches all of our lives and we rely on it. And you put your faith the biggest, into biggest, them. The biggest leap of faith that you make Absolutely. in any, any year is when you walk onto an airplane and you assume that people know what they're doing. Sometimes they don't. Yeah. And by the way, um, George, it feels as though... This is how it's not. I mean, as though Southwest isn't just an anomaly, isn't just a one off. And here's what's happened in the past month airline issues. So there was an FAA system outage there. Oh, that was January 11th, January 13th. There was this near miss nice. at JFK, right. which is super nerve wracking. There was a United plane that actually clipped another one at Newark. That was on February 3rd. And then February 5th, another near collision um, just in the past week at Austin Airport. Right. So it's not just Southwest. It feels like there's some sort of systematic, systemic problem with the airlines right now. Yeah, uh, well, the, the last one, for example, was just a, was a terribly scary because you, you had a FedEx plane, as I recall, coming in, and, to, and there was a Southwest plane on the ground, and the Southwest plane didn't depart when it should have, and as a result, the, the runway was no longer clear. And it's like, why? What, what, what is, I mean, why, first of all, why is air traffic control allowing, giving clearance to take off and land on the same runway at the same time? And what yeah. were those Southwest pilots doing? It turns and, out that at Austin, they don't have this. Um, they got one of them. Yeah. yeah, and they just don't have one of these pieces of equipment. Had they upgraded, right. they would have. 16 other air, you know, bigger airports do have yeah. that. So they have kind of a blind spot. Yeah. It's a problem. Yeah. I'll t- I tell you, the, the one name that has not come up, which I hope will come up, 
is uh, Pete Buttigieg. And what, uh, what do you want him I, to I just do? think that this is a big moment for him. You know, he's in, in charge of transportation for the United States. And I think it's a big moment for him to step forward and insist on something get done. In other words, they're, they're, we need some leadership here. Congressional hearings are fine. But as they said, it's going to be about asking questions. I mean, that's great. So there are going to be tough questions asked. And then tomorrow, I got to get on a plane. I got to get on a plane tomorrow. So, and hasn't he been exerting the leadership? I I think that he could exert more. In other words, I I have so much respect for him, and I think that this is one of those things. To your point, it touches everybody. Everybody, you want to go see your grandma, you want your kid to come home from college. This affects you. I think we need leadership from the Biden administration, especially Pete Pete Buttigieg. We don't want this to be constantly after the fact. You know what I mean? You know, like uh, imagine if someone had gotten to Southwest (laughs) before uh, this fiasco, then everyone would be better off. Yeah, but but at the same time, you can't have the government saying, thou shalt have a great organization. Thou shalt have a great uh, computer system. Why not? You can't. I mean, you can't. At the end of the day, it's going to be these businesses who want to stay in business by serving their customers well and taking business from other companies by doing the job right. And that's the at the end of the day, that's what you know, that's what's going to solve any problem at Southwest is either people walking over to the other airline counters or or, or they have enough customers that they can actually handle that. I have a word for you. It's called oligopoly. In other words, it's not that easy to walk away from an airline especially when you think about the concentration. So there are certain places where airlines really do monopolize. And you do need, look, ordinary free market competition, I'm all for you. But with airlines, you have so few, there's so much concentration, they have so much market power, the government does have to step in and say, look, guys, follow the rules, act right, you're going to get in trouble. Okay, do you guys want to know what the safest seat on the plane is? Yes. Carlos Cockpit. What do you think it is? I said said cockpit. No, not the cockpit. No. But first of all, you can't buy the coffee. You can't. I mean, you can't ask Okay, what seat do you think it is, George? Um, the uh, exit row seat. Oh, that's a good guess. No, it's the worst seat on the whole airplane. Next it's to the, the toilet? Yes. No. Why? Yes. It's the middle rear seat. I mean, do you, do uh, we even want to preserve our lives? <laughs> you know, you gotta, Are you so, willing wow. to take that risk? It's the hey. middle rear seat. Only has a thirty-seven uh, B, right? Yeah, I got to tell Yes, it only has a twenty-eight percent fatality rate. In what instance? <laughs> what are we talking about? Like water landing? Like what? What is the stat you're from? Being, that's, you're being too specific. Uh, and then the next, I guess, safest is the middle aisle seats. Forty-four um, percent fatality rate. Middle aisle. I, Oh, middle aisle. What it's does like that mean? It's like you had to crash 100 yeah, planes. You had a bunch of dummies mean? in there. <laughs> middle row? Uh, I don't Look, if I got a middle, middle of the plane, seat, if I got a seat, oh, okay, got it, got it, got it. Middle of the plane, aisle seat. Okay, that's well, that's the better. Second I'll, safest. I'll, I'll, I'll go with the 44%. Yeah. Listen, if I got to sit back with a toilet the whole time, it's just not it's, worth it. <laughs> Take me out. Absolutely. <laughs> Take me out. All right, guys, thank you very much. It was a moment for the record books. LeBron James passing Kareem Abdul Jabbar for most all time points in the NBA. But how many people there actually caught the moment with their own eyes and not their phones? And which one's better anyway? We discuss that and show you the pictures next. LeBron James making history after passing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as the new all-time NBA scoring leader. 
But let's take a look at these two pictures that we're about to show you, okay? So there's Michael Jordan. That's him making his last shot for the Chicago Bulls on June 4th, 1998. And you can see all the fans there. Maybe we can press in, but basically they're witnessing it with their own eyes. And you compare that to the shot of LeBron last night when he broke the all-time scoring record and nearly every fan there is holding up, I'll demonstrate it for you, holding up their phone and capturing the moment through a lens rather than with their eyes. Back with me, Andrew Yang, Ben Jones, and George Conway. I see you clutching your phone. Well, you know, I can take a picture. I can take video of, of what's going on so, here with and see you at the same time. So, like, there, I got you. And, you know. So, so that's, that's what you think is happening. That's, they're yeah, doing no, they're raising their hands like that. You know, it's, it's they, no, is it any different than holding up they, a, 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 a lighter, a lighter at, at a concert? You know, <laughs> they, I mean, they, I got all this video. They paid thousands of dollars to be there to witness that moment. And they needed to videotape it so that they could share it with their friends. That they had spent thousands of dollars. Yeah, I mean, I think that's yeah, You can't take a piece of the seat with you. You can't steal <laughs> a piece of the hardwood floor. If it's not on the gram, it didn't happen. That, that's what people are saying. Like I do want to say that I now believe LeBron to be the greatest of all time. I've been a Jordan guy uh, my entire life after having him dominate the the uh, Ewing Knicks uh, in my formative years. But I think Jordan's now the goat. Well, uh, Van's growling. Right? <laughs> 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 he's, he's in a similar page to, to me. Over. Hey, no, and the, what no, about Kareem? Is Kareem like what? Michael Jordan had to do everything he did when they could hand check and throw you to the ground and kick you in the face. And so it's just a, it's a, it was a different era. Yeah. So he's the greatest of this era, and he's certainly one of the greatest, uh, uh, LeBron James. I'm not taking anything away from him, but Michael Jordan is the greatest, period. And I want, I'm, this, that's it. And <laughs> that, that's it. <laughs> Phone, Phone drop. drop. Right. I was with you yeah. until just recently. I was like, you know what? Le- LeBron has outlasted any yeah. of my reservations, dude. I, I, look, I, I love them. I love them both. But, but, here's, but here's what I will say: I have a one-year-old daughter, and I actually have more pictures of her and more videos of her in her first year than I have my 18-year-old's entire life. I, I just I, I'm so I'm a, I, I'm just crazy about this device and and I whatever she does I'm taking pictures I'm videotaping I just I think that the culture has completely changed it does it doesn't feel like even in my own house that it happened if I didn't record it in my house let alone if I had been there if I had been there I'd have been like this the so whole time all of you the agree. technology makes a big difference yeah. I mean when I when my kids were when my first kids were born our first kids were born in 2004 mm-hmm. it didn't the, the video quality was ridiculous right. it didn't really exist so we had these you know these these cams with the little cassettes and that you know and I've got piles of these cassettes <laughs> I, I need to basically take them to somebody to transfer and, and make that's them never digital and it, yeah so yeah it's going tomorrow next week I don't so basically, all of you are in agreement that our phones enhance the experience, not not dampen it somehow. We are cyborgs now. That's what I believe. I believe these things are literally a part of us. And here's, here's how you know. Let Lose your phone and see oh. how you act. You don't know where to go. You can't call anybody. Oh, you can't get across the street. No, so you're this, on MS. So, so I, I, I'm, and I'm not as worried about I it as I used to I agree with all be. that, but I guess I, I mean a, a, live, no. a live action experience, a live concert, a live moment like that, a history-making moment. If you're looking at it through your phone, you still are okay. Like you, you think it still enhances the experience, not dampens it somehow, rather than just experience it, being in the moment. Uh, I think they're both trying to experience it and record it so they can share it with other people. I agree with Van that at this point, we're having our brains rewired. I'm not sure it's wholly positive. I think most of us can agree that, <laughs> that there could be some negatives, particularly for young people. I thank, uh, uh, I thank my lucky star is that I came of age 
uh, at a period when we weren't cyborgs, <laughs> to, to Van's point. Um, and for young people in particular, I mean, you are seeing surges in anxiety, depression. Oh, that's uh, no, know, there's no like, debate about like that. That's, that's not even open to debate anymore. In terms of social media, I would say, on balance, it has um, it's, been it's detrimental. It's it's been Look, uh, uh, Prince used to make uh, people not bring the cameras. Uh, uh, Dave Chappelle doesn't want you to bring it because you do lose something of, of the presence and the immediacy. I just think it's a trade-off. And uh, look, I have a 14-year-old son. Uh, he made an unbelievable behind-the-back pass in basketball. And he was so happy. And then he found out that I hadn't recorded it. Oh, no. And he was miserable because even though it job. happened... Exactly. You know, he, he said, he said, he said oh, never record again, Dad. But even though it happened and his friend saw it, he, the fact that he couldn't share it with his mom who wasn't there... It didn't essentially happen. So it's just a different... I don't think... Uh, uh, I do think it's a trade-off. I think it's a trade-off, but I get it. I get it. Because I'm, I'm a part of it now. I, I, I'm not yeah. a critic of it. I'm a part of it. I, all, we're all guilty of it. Yeah. No, I get what you mean, but in terms of the prince being the purist and mm-hmm. Dave Chappelle being the purist, I understand that. I mean, yeah. have, wanting to have that, your own sort of transcendental moment without being tethered to the phone. I get that. However, yeah. having said that, there are so many live music events from my teenage years that I wish I had mm-hmm. on my phone, you know? So they're just, they're in my memory and they're incandescent uh-huh. in my memory, but I wish I could relive them on my phone. I've, I've been in front of groups of people and the fact is you actually have a different experience yourself if you know it's being recorded. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's say I'm speaking at a political event. If it's not being recorded, it's being recorded. I hate to say it, but like mm-hmm. it's going to go down differently. So, but don't you just think everything's being recorded nowadays? I mean, that, that's like your default mode. Um, but there are also times it's deeply uncomfortable when someone just run up to you with a camera in your yeah, face and then is. and then they'll press you on something and you can tell that uh, you know it, it's meant to be like an aggressive move. Um, so there. We are, uh, unfortunately, I think, having our culture changed in, in a way that's changing uh, our experiences in real time. Yeah, I don't like that. You're not. Are you a big social media guy? A um, little bit. Are you? <laughs> yeah, I, I've been known to post yeah. a few things. Yeah. So, <laughs> no, a, a, a I mean tweet or Twitter. Two. No, a tweet come on, that's two. different. Like Twitter's different than Instagram. <laughs> I because... No, I don't. I've never done Instagram and never done Facebook. Yeah, that's what I mean, you're I, talking. I, I look at other people's Instagrams and I spy on other people's Facebooks and naturally, I you know I play lots of TikToks of. Dogs and cats, basically. Of course you do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I guess my point is that the the feeling of it didn't happen unless you post it is purely a new phenomenon and this generation. And again, I'm not sure that that's Mm. the best. Okay, guys, thank you very much for all of that. It's not the best, Allison. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> wait till but Michael Jordan. Wait till they come back with the Michael Jordan glasses that actually work. <laughs> no, I don't want those. Oh, I love, I love LeBron um, All right, a big admission from the suspect in the Dallas Zoo incidents. Court documents say he's allegedly confessed to the thefts and even wanted to take more animals. Wildlife biologist Jeff Corwin is here to talk about this phenomenon next. Big developments tonight in the recent tampering incidents at the Dallas Zoo. Court documents allege the 24-year-old Davian Irwin, Irvin, who's facing at least eight charges, admits to stealing the two tamarind monkeys that were eventually found in an abandoned house. Irvin also allegedly admits to trying to steal the clouded snow leopard that got out of its cage before being captured again. And he apparently told police that he wants to take more animals and will do so if he gets out of jail. 
Let's discuss with wildlife biologist Jeff Corwin, host of Wildlife Nation. Jeff, great to see you. Have you ever come across a case like this in your history? Well, good evening, Allison. I'm delighted to spend uh, some time with you tonight. And But unfortunately, these circumstances are... are I'm just struggling with them because, yes, I have been in situations where I've looked at the black market trade. For example, I presented a series with Anderson Cooper called Planet and Pearl, where we traveled around the world looking at the black market sale of wildlife, which is something like a $60 billion industry. But to see this level of disregard and selfishness, and uh, I I just struggle with it. is there a neurosis here? Is it the fact that we just don't have the laws to hold him accountable? Uh, Our laws, when it comes to to stuff like this, are woefully inadequate Hmm. when holding people accountable, committing crimes against wildlife and animals. Yeah, I agree with you. This is a very peculiar one because is he trying to free the animals? Is he trying to hurt the animals? It's unclear, but I, I agree with you. It seems like some sort of personality psychosis of some kind because he seems hell-bent on doing it again. Here are the vandalism incidents just since January 13th at the Dallas Zoo. Just to remind everybody, the clouded leopard that we talked about named Nova disappeared, then was found close to her habitat later that day. Enclosure of the Langer monkeys had been cut, but none of the monkeys left their habitat. The vulture named Pin was found dead his habitat. No one has figured out yet if that was intentional. And then those two emperor tamarind monkeys went missing and they were found alive, but in the closet of an abandoned Dallas area home. So it's very hard to know uh, if all of these are connected or what the motivation is. But but Jeff, to your larger point, um, is there, have you seen things like this on the rise since reality shows about exotic pets and exotic animals are you seeing more kind of um, a fetishizing of those animals? That's an interesting observation. I can tell you what I don't see in this individual. I don't see a sense of altruism. I don't see behaviors that are really designed in any way towards the advocacy for wildlife or conservation. This was malevolent. This was malicious. This was vandalism. And it put endangered species even more at risk. And it is not impossible that he could be the culprit behind the demise of that lapid face vulture, where there are only about six or 7,000 of these vultures left. But again, we've seen this in cases with domestic animals where mentally deranged people break into a, or, or youth with no sense of consciousness um, will break into a, a shelter, kill animals, and then they walk away with barely but a slap on the wrist. Well, let's talk about we that. Why, why is that, Jeff? Like, yeah, tell me about that. Why aren't the laws punishing them more harshly? Because we live in a world where human life is valued more than animal life, and we live in a world where we have a strong connection to animals domestically uh, for food consumption, for uh, in our social environment, in our culture, where we don't want to be in a situation where someone 
accidentally runs over a cat and they go to jail for 60 years for, you know, cat manslaughter. On the other side, people are allowed to literally get away with the demise of creatures, especially in malicious intent. And this guy's a perfect example of that. Allison, we do have laws. For example, we have the Lacey Act. It's almost 100 years old, where if you take an animal that's endangered, for example, and you move it across a county line or a state line, you can go to jail for uh, up to five years and be fined tens of thousands of dollars. But rarely, rarely do we see those laws enforced. Even internationally, we have huge issues where people are caught smuggling endangered species out of the United States. And oftentimes what they get is maybe two months in prison and a slap on the wrist. People violate hunting regulations. Mm. And when they end, you know, they lose their hunting license for a year. We don't hold people accountable. Interesting question, though. What is the social media connection here? And I think what we're seeing are a lot of copycat demonstrations where it's sort of like that culprit, you know, the arsonist who started that fire may have a connection to, you know, the fireman or the the, the firework or rescuer community. The, the idea that we get these copycat crimes at the in New York City and in, in the Central Park Zoo with that very important owl species, the Eurasian owl, a monkey stolen from another zoo. We're seeing this ripple effect across our nation. And I don't have the answers to yeah. why, but maybe, Allison, if we held them accountable, we would see less of these acts. Well, Jeff, great to get your perspective. This is something that really interests our viewers, interests a lot of people about what's going on, because we do, as you say, have this relationship with these animals. And certainly at our zoos, we want to be able to see the animals and have access to them without them being in danger. But Jeff Corbin, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you very much. Okay, so amid terrible tragedy, a story of survival. A Syrian newborn pulled from the rubble after this week's devastating earthquake and found alive. We're going to show you her dramatic rescue. Devastation in Syria and Turkey tonight, where the death toll is soaring to more than 15,000 people from the massive earthquake on Monday. In Syria, a baby girl born during the earthquake was found alive in the rubble, reportedly with her umbilical cord still attached. But her mother is believed to have died. There's dramatic video that shows the moment a rescuer swept the baby girl out of the wreckage and to safety. You can see it right there. Today, two women were found alive in Turkey more than 62 hours after the 7.8 earthquake. But of course, the death toll continues to rise. Nearly 60,000 people in Turkey and Syria have been injured. And tonight, the rescue efforts continue in a race against time to save anyone else who might still be buried alive under those ruins. Okay, up next, we're going to talk about George Santos, the congressman who lied his way into the job, as you know. And he's taking aim at Senator Mitt Romney tonight and going after, of all things, Mitt Romney's religion, you'll remember George Santos, claimed to be Jewish. Truth Challenge Republican Congressman George Santos is going after Senator Mitt Romney tonight after the senator told Santos, quote, you don't belong here. 
during a quick and feisty exchange at last night's State of the Union. It's not the first time in history that I've been told to shut up and go to the back of the room, especially by people who come from a privileged background. Uh, and it's not going to be the last, and I'm never going to shut up and go to the back of the room. And I think it's reprehensible that the senator would say such a thing to me in the demeaning way he said it wasn't very Mormon of him. That's what I can tell you. Here with me in studio, CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller. We also have political commentator Ashley Allison and conservative lawyer George Conway. Ashley, what a juxtaposition to just see them even speaking. Here's Senator Mitt Romney, who is widely considered arguably one of the most decent and dignified politicians in Congress against George Santos, who is widely considered to be a prolific serial liar. And the fact that they even had that exchange, what were you thinking as you were watching it? Well, I was dying to know what they were saying first. And then when I heard the readout, it shows you how egregious Santos's behavior is for, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Mitt Romney, but I do understand that he tries to hold a level of decorum and definitely during the the chamber for the State of the Union. But George Santos, I mean, he was elected, but he actually wasn't. We don't even know who he truly is. So it is telling that a Mitt Romney would take the time to say, what are you doing, dude? Like, get away. Um, yeah. Santos needs to go. What did you think as you watched it, George? Um, Santos, <laughs> I mean, to, for him to play the victim there oh, yeah. is mm-hmm. just... It is just so absurd. Oh, it's this, it's, it's Mitt Romney's privileged background. No, it's not about that. It's about the fact that you are a pathological liar. You know, Mitt Romney, yes, he did work in an investment firm. You ran a Ponzi scheme. I mean, you know, what, what is so also, hard about this? Also, does he have millions or is he a pauper? It's is he a pauper? Right. Did he, you know, did he, did he really eat all those $199.99 dinners at that, 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 that restaurant that was there on his uh, uh, expense account there for his, for his campaign? I mean, come on. I mean, come on. It's just absurd. Impossible to know. Um, here's something interesting, John, that I think is in your wheelhouse. Um, Eva McKend, one of our great correspondents, did uh, an interview with a specialist in pathological liars. And so here is what that psychologist has to say. When we see people telling egregious lies like that, and there appears to be a lifelong pattern associated with it, I would say certainly he's, he seems to be the type of person who's engaging in pathological lying. There was this moment at the State of the Union address where Senator Romney approached him and he didn't seem apologetic at all. We see this pattern a lot in people with psychopathic tendencies or people with antisocial personality disorders. And in those cases, what we find is that those people are extremely comfortable manipulating and using and exploiting people. And they do so with very little guilt or shame and tend not to have remorse. Fascinating. I mean, with your background in criminology. Well, he breaks the model. Um, you know, I've done a lot of training, uh, both uh, for my investigators and my analysts, in how to detect signs of deception in non-custodial interrogation situations. And, you know, there's a lot of tells. The problem here is you've got to reverse the model, which is you've really got to mind for when is he telling the truth, because lying is difficult. You have to keep track of them. You have to categorize them. You have to make sure that you maintain them in these complex stories, whether you know, you're cheating on a lover or doing uh, a Ponzi scheme, uh, you know, like Madoff. But when you would just as soon lie as tell the truth about something simple and the lies stack up and they don't make sense, it really comes down to a couple of things, which is shame on us. 
the fact that he got elected and then we found out all of this uh, shows a failure of the political process, a failure of the media, the press. Um, and, and, a, and in a situation where, look, if he was the governor of California, they'd recall him. Can't do that in Congress. No. It's constitutionally banned. I also think that one of the reasons that we report so much on George Santos is because there is something fascinating about someone who, who looks you right in the eye mm-hmm. and says a bald-faced lie over and over. There's, we don't meet these characters that often. Usually there is some level of shame where somebody gets busted lying and they kind of have to, you know, they look flummoxed and they have to say, he isn't like that. So he's this character that you just don't stumble across that often because, as you say, you have to keep track of the lies. No, he doesn't. He gets caught in them all the time. Right. Yeah. And then he just pivots to something else. And he, to George's point, then he plays victim. Right. Uh, there was a clip a couple of weeks ago where reporters were following out of the Capitol, and I think a, a camera woman bumped into George. He's like, easy, guys, that's assault. It's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> Again, this is This is nonsense. a specific personality type. And we're seeing more of it in politics today. I mean, that's just the, the, the psychologist you interviewed there, he talked about psychopathy. He talked about antisocial personality disorder. The DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for, for uh, Mental D- Disorders, talks about sociopathy. All you have to show is, like, somebody's a serial liar. Somebody uses aliases, for example. They have no remorse. They have trouble obeying the law. Where have we seen that before? We saw it for four years, mm-hmm. and we see it with... What it's 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 what the problem is we haven't been able to call it out for what it is and now it's perpetuating. Except that we are calling George Santos out. Everybody is saying even his no, but constituents I, but, but I, but, are calling it out, but it doesn't change what he's no, doing. No, it doesn't. But we're we're not calling it out for you know he's a sociopath, he's a psychopath. Trump was a psychopath and a sociopath too. He did exactly the same things. He you know, <laughs> Donald Trump famously pretended to be a PR agent named John Barron. He also used the name John Miller, by the way. And, and he certainly would call affected up, my Google Yes, yeah, people think you're, you know, people are right? right? oh, yeah. and, and he would call up reporters and tell leak great stories about how he was, you know, with this Lothario, hot babe. And, yes. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, you know, the best is, part about that is insane. when Donald Trump assumed the John Miller personality, yes. the reporter said, well, what happened to the old, you know, PR firm? He said, well... You know, Donald trusts me with the more important stuff. He has a lot of... Con- I'm like, oh, my God, even his alter ego has an ego. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's amazing. He went on for five minutes about why Donald but, likes him. But, yes, but because you- he's so great. I mean, he's a great... You know, and that's... You know, again, that's the narcissistic aspect of these narcissistic sociopaths that are just... You know, they, 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 they play the victim. Um, and they they want they try to tell everybody how great they are, even if it's not true. How, but, how but they I won think- an election. Um, yeah. Got millions of votes well, that they didn't win. Then- but I think if to, to your point, if you look a little bit deeper about what this state says about the state of politics, it's let's look at last night. You had one side of the house screaming liar right. and the other house saying, no, you're you're not being truthful about what you would do with certain policies. And I think, you know, George Santos is a system of or a symptom of a political system right now that is really unstable and Americans are frustrated with it. And so we are at a moment where truth and honesty needs to be the leading factor, regardless of what party We're you so are. Far but, from We're so I far mean, from that. We're so far from that. Can we bring it back? I don't know, know the That's answer. the former Republican here. 
I'm going to, I mean, this is actually not, I wouldn't both sides this in that way. I, I mean, I don't mean you were both siding, sizing it, but I mean, this is becoming a very specific Republican problem because Donald Trump cha- gave, created a permission yes. structure for anybody to say anything about anyone. And I mean, Donald Trump used to accuse a, a, an MSNBC anchor of murder. I agree. I think- and, you know, and this is it's like completely baseless. No, you know, and he, he got away with that. He, he, it's just, and he broke would, it. You, you say Donald Trump Don, well, No, no, no. I mean, he was, there was shamelessness, obviously, right. for a long time yeah. before. Well, but you're saying that he's the one well, that Well, he gave the, he gave, he created a permission structure where, where, where people said, hey, I can do that too. Um, and, and he went and, unchecked and, by his party when and, he did and, it. Right. And, it, and it's also deterring good people from running for office. I mean, we don't have many Mitt Romneys left precisely because who wants to play in this dirty playground? Yeah. I, did, I did like Santos's come clean interview where he said, I'm really sorry about all the lies. And he said, I'm never going to lie again. And he closed with, and you know, most of what I said before was true. I'm like, <laughs> which was a lie. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, he well, can't do he's it. He's scared. He no, just he can't. can't. No, no, he can't. I mean, and again, to your point about the shamelessness, um, which played into what we saw last night. You know, at one time in 2009, as we know, when Joe Wilson yelled liar, he was censured. Um, and it was a shocking moment then. And last night, it was like, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene was at like a bachelorette party. Like she was just, you know, yelling freely yeah. whenever she wanted. Like the Cruella de- DeVille outfit. Right? Yeah. I mean, that was kind of interesting. She was yeah. out of order, but she's been out of order from the beginning. Um, you know, her behavior Her brain has been night, out of order for... But I mean, this was, her, this was the state of the union, though. I mean, it finally, is the state of... Yeah, look at know, her. We, there she we, is. We took the <laughs> one single thing that we carried forward with more dignity than the Brits and, you know, lost it. Um, you know, bad lip reading. I feel like we should just play some bad lip reading, although oh it's not God. even as, necessarily as good as what they really said, what Mitt Romney actually said to George Santos. But here's the bad lip reading of the night. You ought to be embarrassed. Yeah, sure. You ought to be embarrassed. I'm you well, ought to be embarrassed. You. you ought to be embarrassed, uh-huh. son. Sure, you got me. See what I, mean? I mean, it was basically exactly what they said. That, that bad lip reading, they did, you know, art imitating life. That's all I can say. Thank you, guys. Okay, meanwhile, Joe Rogan is in hot water tonight for repeating an anti-Semitic trope while defending Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. What are we to do with Joe Rogan? He's the most popular podcaster in the country. Does it matter what he says? Why isn't he doing more research before he talks? All of that next. Okay. <laughs> so Joe Rogan is facing blowback tonight after saying on his show that Jewish people are, and I quote, into money. Ilian Omar, where she's uh, she's apologizing for talking about it's all about the Benjamins. Yeah. Which is just about money. She's she right. talking about she money. She shouldn't have apologized. She, that I mean, was I'll not, go ahead That's not an anti-Semitic it. statement. I don't think that is. It's about Benjamins or money. You know, the, the idea that Jewish people are not into money is ridiculous. Listen. That's like saying uh, Italians aren't into pizza. It's <laughs> Stupid. Hmm. Rogan used the trope in defending Congresswoman Ilhan Omar's tweet from 2019 that implied Republican support of Israel is fueled by money. Omar apologized for the tweet. Joe Rogan has not. Spotify, his podcast platform, has said nothing. Back with me now, we have John Miller, also Emma Goldberg is here, and Ellie Honig. So, you know who's really into money? Joe Rogan. <laughs> Joe Rogan is really into money. Uh, I, I mean, 
I don't know what to do anymore about Joe Rogan because he's not an elected representative. He's not a journalist. He's not a pillar of society. He's a guy who has paid Ellie to a lot, a lot of millions and millions a year to entertain people with sort of scandalous, you know, whatever, whatever pops into his mind. It can be scandalous. It can be um, you know, body, whatever. And that's what he's paid to do. Yeah, so two, two big thoughts yeah. on that. First of all, you cannot make anti-Semitic comments, racist comments, sexist comments, and then defend them by saying, but it's true, right? That is, A, is not a defense to B. Let's start with that. However, Joe Rogan has built his own empire. He's an entertainer. Um, he is a product of our capitalist society and of our First Amendment. And I don't begrudge him as much as, you know, I, I reserve the right to be offended as a Jewish person or as any kind of person, but he can say what he wants to say. And we often say that the, the best solution for bad speech is more speech or good speech. Now, I'd expect him to take on other points of view. He, he prides himself on being open-minded. I don't see that here. But I also hold Joe Rogan in a different, uh, to different standards than Ilhan Omar. Joe Rogan is a podcaster. Mm-hmm. Ilhan Omar is a member of Congress. Yes, and too. so I save stronger, much stronger condemnation for Representative Omar, although she did apologize for that remark. Yeah, no, I do too. Emma, how do you see it? Yeah, I mean, if you listen to Joe Rogan, he's always he has this line where he's always like, I've done the research so that you don't have to. So let's look at the research for a second. I mean, the history behind this whole trope is that in the Middle Ages, Jews had to be money handlers because they weren't allowed into any other profession. So it's echoing these this centuries-old hatred. And, and on top of that, this isn't Rogan's first rodeo, right? He's been called out for racist remarks, for spreading COVID misinformation. And this is a man with a, a heavy load of responsibility on his shoulders because 11 million people are listening to him. He's their primary source of news. So if anyone should be doing their research, it's him. He should be really making sure that what he's saying is accurate and isn't freighted with hatred and and violent history. You're blowing my mind right now because I didn't know that he claimed to do research. I thought that his claim to fame was like, I blather, you know, like, hey, I'm not a journalist. I can say whatever I want. So the fact that he claims to do research does, I think, actually make this more offensive. I thought he was like, I'm just having a conversation with my pals here. But, and like, you guys are just listening in. But he claims to do research. I mean, he's, he's peddles so much misinformation. That's amusing or alarming. I mean, his episodes go so long that, you know, by the time you're an hour and a half in, you're like, you've kind of lost the plot. But he brings in these kind of crackpot experts sometimes, too. I mean, when you look at the, first of all, <clears throat> Joe Rogan is a, uh, a great experiment in the First Amendment. I mean, any democracy can go around protecting popular speech. You know, the great democracies are the ones that protect unpopular speech. So I can disagree with everything the guy says, and I've heard the foreign owners of the company that, you know, refuses to take him off talk about why, when he was saying the things about COVID he was saying that were demonstrably untrue then and totally untrue now, um, they left him on because they felt it was important for that kind of free speech and to go on. And because they like that he's so successful. And there is that too. But I, I go back to Ellie's point, which is Joe Rogan is saying things to get a reaction and being outrageous for a purpose, probably. He is not an elected member of Congress. And for Congresswoman Omar to say something like she said and then tweet it brings up a number of questions, which is A, if that's what she's saying in public, what does she say in private about those things? I mean, she B, apologized. If she knew not to, if she knew to delete the tweet right away, mm. why did she say it in the first place? But moreover, 
when you get to that particular wing of, of, the, of the party, of the discussion, um, everything's an offense, everything is an aggression, then some things are microaggressions, everything is highly sensitive. The kind of arrogance to think that none of that applies to you was stunning. But wait a minute. An apology is sorry. great. Oh, sorry, you're talking now about Congressman Omar, and you're saying, saying it's all about the Benjamins. Right, but you're saying that that you find that the squad or whatever that wing that they're they're too sensitive about things that are being said. Right, and I mean the fact that you know her defender is probably the last person on earth that she would want to be associated with just takes this in a circle that shows how ridiculous the political conversation has gotten. Can I just build on sort of why? I, I'm going to focus on Representative Omar here because she's the one who is voting in Congress about matters of state. Why it's so offensive. And I think Emma really hit the nail on the head when she said this is a trope. Meaning, it's not just about saying Jews love money. I mean, it's a ridiculous statement that it, he says he says Italians love pizza. This is silly stuff. But the notion, this notion that Jews, a small cabal of Jews control finance, media, entertainment, the banks, goes back as old as the Jewish people themselves. It was used in Nazi propaganda as an excuse for why we need to round people up. I'm not saying we're there, but I'm saying this is why it goes beyond just the surface of the words that are used. And this is why I have such a problem, in particular with Representative Omar. And I also should say this about Representative Omar. This is not a one-time slip of the tongue. She has a history of doing this going back a decade or so, several times over. And it sort of follows this same dance every time where she sort of apologizes, sort of walks it back, tries to cast herself as the victim sort of invariably. Um, So she's the one I'm looking at here. Joe Rogan, again, we can like him, we cannot like him. You can listen to him, you cannot listen to him. It would be nice if he was open to alternative viewpoints. Remember, he had Dr. Gupta on. He had Sanjay Gupta on. He did, he did. Which I thought was interesting. he is open Um, to other viewpoints. I just don't, I just question his research. Yeah, for sure. You know, everything that you both have just said tonight is more illuminating than anything that he has said on the topic. But here's what the ADL, Stephen Greenblatt, uh, Jonathan Greenblatt, has said about this um, yesterday. Yeah. He said, disturbing that at a time of rising anti-Jewish violence, when growing numbers of Americans believe in anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, Joe Rogan would use his immense platform to spew anti-Semitic tropes about Jews and money. For centuries, people have used these long-standing tropes to spread vicious lies about the Jewish people, comedian or not. Rogan's comments are no joke. And I mean, that's to your point. He has, he does have a responsibility because he's so popular. With millions of listeners, you just have, you should have a higher moral responsibility. But I mean, why is this dangerous? We were talking about this just the other night, which is this kind of conversation from a wildly popular podcaster or an elected member of Congress or some of our other politicians has bled into this discussion going on in the darkest corners of the internet about anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish violence, Nazi theories as kind of mainstream thinking in ways that we haven't seen or heard in this country in years. And it is increasingly attached to physical acts of violence and attacks and mass murders and active shooters. Uh, Words matter. Yeah, I hope Joe Rogan's watching tonight, and I'm sure he is. Um, thank you, guys. Okay, now a prediction today about DeMar Hamlin's future in the NFL just weeks after he suffered cardiac arrest on the field. Could we see him play again? Dr. Sanjay Gupta, here next.
A prediction today about DeMar Hamlin's future. It was just six weeks ago that the Buffalo Bills safety went into cardiac arrest during a game against the Cincinnati Bengals. No official diagnosis has been made about what caused his heart to stop, but the medical director of the NFL Players Association says Hamlin will be back on the field. I guarantee you, Veronica, that DeMar Hamlin will play professional football again. Hamlin was honored today with the 2023 NFL Players Association Award for dedication to the community. His charity toy drive raising more than $9 million. CNN chief medical correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta is with me now. So, Sanjay, um, hearing that, of course, is wonderful. Good news. It's a miracle to hear Dr. Meyer say that he will play football again after what he went through. But medically speaking, is it wise for him to play football again? Well, you know, when you hear something like this from a doctor, and he was not equivocal about this at all, Allison, right? He said definitely going to play football again. I think it it means a lot of things. I mean, I don't think that he would say that lightly. Um, And even though there isn't an official diagnosis yet, um, what he's basically saying is that DeMar Hamlin has made a full recovery. And I think more importantly, that he's gone through a series of tests. Uh, we, we, can, we can sort of get an idea of the type of testing that would have been performed on his heart to try and figure out two things. Uh, a, what exactly happened to him? And again, there's no official diagnosis yet, but I think that they probably are zeroing in on it. But also, you know, what kind of shape is his heart in now? And those are the type of tests that you see there on the screen, electrocardiogram, mm-hmm. uh, echocardiogram, a heart MRI or CT scan, stress tests. And basically, after doing all these tests, they didn't find that there was a persistent problem. One of the things, Allison, they were probably trying to figure out is, was there some sort of underlying issue here that, that may have caused this? We, we, we did dig into this a little bit deeper after hearing Dr. Meyer's comments, and the American Heart Association, as rare as commotio cordis is, they do have this statement about players with commotial cordis, and I'll read this to you specifically. It says, if no underlying cardiac abnormality is identified, then individuals can safely resume training and competition after resuscitation from commotial cordis. So uh, this is rare. Um, so there's not a lot of data, Allison, in the past when you and I have talked about medical issues, sometimes we're talking about data based on thousands, tens of thousands of people. Two dozen or so people may have this every year, but based on what they know, it sounds like they think he's good to go. And yet there is some information about commotio cordis that I want to bring up because I, I was interested to see uh, who it happens to. 95% of the cases, as you well know, Sanjay, are adolescent boys. Men, the mean age is 14 years old. And a risk factor is impact from a hard spherical object. So why does it mostly happen to adolescent boys? They're not sure. I mean, there's all sorts of speculation about this. And again, I'll I'll keep reiterating that this is rare. And the reason I keep saying that is because it's very hard to to draw, you know, sort of these broad conclusions when something has happened so infrequently. But they think, you know, typically um, it's, it has to do with this, this blow to the chest in someone who's younger. Obviously, DeMar Hamlin's older, but in someone who's younger, they have thinner chest wall. And that thinner chest wall may actually be something that makes them more vulnerable to having a blow to the chest that actually stuns the heart, essentially. Right as the heart is starting to sort of relax for its next beat, it is stunned by this blow to the chest, and a thinner chest may cause that, or a very significant blow. You don't hear about this in football, uh, hardly ever. You hear about it in sports that have an object that is being hurtled through the air at a high rate of speed. 
baseball, lacrosse ball, hockey puck, things like that. But that's probably why you're seeing it more in that particular age group. Well, when this first happened to him and everyone was so shocked and so concerned when he, you know, collapsed on the field, um, I believe you were on the air and you said, I don't know, but it looks like Camocio Cordis to you from what you just watched. Right. So why has, haven't they been able to come up with a cause after all this time? One of the things that they call this type of diagnosis, uh, Allison, is something known as a diagnosis of exclusion. There's not a specific blood test or a scan that says, aha, this is definitely commotio cortis. The way the diagnosis is made is that you rule out all these other things. Did he have some sort of cardiomyopathy, some sort of underlying problem of the heart? Did he have an electrical problem of the heart? There are certain electrical problems that can predispose people to cardiac arrest. Again, it sounds like, especially given Dr. Meyer's comments, which we're just hearing today, that they've ruled all that out. So my guess is they probably do have their diagnosis. They just haven't officially said it yet. But, but I, I think that's, that's the process, typically, this diagnosis of exclusion process. Okay, really helpful. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, great to see you. Thanks so much. You got it. Anytime. Thank you. Just ahead, what well, one of the police officers charged in the beating death of Tyree Nichols is now claiming. For the first time, we're hearing from one of the five Memphis police officers charged with murder in the beating of Tyree Nichols, former officer Justin Smith, explaining in a newly obtained sworn affidavit that he called for medical help before arriving on the scene that night. CNN has not been able to independently verify that he made that call. Smith, who has an EMT certification, also suggested he attempted to help Nichols by propping him up against the police car so he could breathe better. Back with me, we have John Miller, Ashley Allison, and Ellie Honig. I don't understand, um, well, let me just start with you. I mean, this is the first time that we're hearing from him. Uh, John, but he called for help. We don't know if that's true. He has an EMT certification. Propping up Tyree Nichols is the most he could do? How about CPR? How about anything else? Well, I mean, propping him up was the right thing to do um, because you want even somebody in handcuffs sitting upright so if they don't aspirate and all that. But then where was the rest, which is, as a certified EMT, you know, he should have been checking for vital signs and other things while they were waiting for the fire department EMTs to get there. But we know from the story that the fire department EMTs got there and then they didn't check anything for a long time. So from every standpoint, uh, this was a massive show of failure to render aid, which is a sworn obligation. And so, but, but if he did make that phone call, that would help him at trial, I assume. To an extent. So first of all, if he claims in a sworn affidavit that he made that call, he better have made that call, right? And presumably he knows enough to know that any call he would make from the scene in his official duties would be recorded somehow or other. We don't know exactly how he claims he made the call, whether it was over the police radio, by sometimes cops use their own phones, text, who knows? There better be a record of that. Now, if he did that, this will help him on some of the lower charges on the indictment, the official omission, official misconduct, the failure to render aid. But it does not do anything for him on the top charge, on the murder in the second degree charge, on the aggravated assault charge. The other thing that I just want to highlight is going to be a really important decision in this case is how are these five defendants going to be split up for trial? The technical legal word is severance. I guarantee you the prosecutors want all five of them there together because the prosecutor wants to say to the jury, all five of these men work together. They're all complicit. They all were part of it. 
But each one of them is going to want their own separate trial. Who decides? The judge decides that, and that's a crucial decision. Uh, So, Ashley, there's also another development, and that is that one of the officers now charged, um, named Demetrius Haley, took a picture of Tyree Nichols after he was beaten and apparently texted it around. Well, I don't even know what, I mean, I don't know what to make of that. I don't know what, that, that shows a different level of voyeurism or cruelty. Yeah, you had time to take a photo and text your friends, but not call for help or stop beating a man. It's, it's disgusting to me. And I think it speaks to the culture of that department, the culture of that squad. And I know after many police incidents, and particularly this one, there are calls for additional training. But I would beg to say that the training is not going to tell you to beat someone to a bloody pulp and then take a photo. Like, training doesn't stop an incident like this from happening, actually. This is why you have to get to the culture of the police department and really talk about how uh, violence and going out with this warrior mentality that so many officers do sometimes show up in can be problematic and lead to these deadly situations like in the Nichols case. Yes, but don't we want our police officers to have a warrior mentality? I mean, they are going out to fight, you know, obviously dangerous criminals. Like, you know a lot about culture. What what can they do in this police department since it's clearly rotten? Well, first of all, I would hesitate to paint with a wide brush to say every cop in Memphis is bad or every cop anywhere is bad. We have five bad cops here um, that could only exist in a culture that allowed that kind of moral corruption um, to exist. So there's a problem there. I'm sure there are many good police officers in Memphis. These specialized units um, in a city that is beset with crime, like Memphis is, but many cities are, can be highly effective if properly run. Properly run means careful selection process. That clearly didn't happen here. Close supervision. One sergeant for every four or five operators out there. Clearly not the case. One lieutenant shows up six minutes after this is all over and has very little effect. Um, Those are the basics of running a high-end plainclothes unit that's going to be engaging people in possible violent crime scenarios. And, you know, the chief admitted herself. She said, I don't have enough supervisors um, to put out there. And is she at all responsible for this culture? I know that she is a new, relatively new police chief there, but how much responsibility does she have for this? Well, she is caught in a terrible, perfect storm. She's a very well-regarded chief. Um, She has very good reviews from where she came from in Durham. Uh, But when she gets there, she has a police department that is hemorrhaging people, um, losing staff, uh, and... uh, and a city that is overrun with crime, one of the most dangerous metropolitan areas in the, in, the, in, the con- in the country, and a mayor, a press, and a city council who are demanding uh, to act on those violent crimes. So no, any way it was going to come out, it was going to be a challenge for, for C.J. Davis. Yeah, I mean, I think... You have to, she has to have some accountability because at the end of the day, those officers were a part of, his, of her department. But I actually think you hit some, a really important point is that the decision on how to bring crime down in the community, all of it was put on the backs of the police officers. And we know that crime and, and crime intervention can happen in many different ways. And so rather than the mayor, rather than the city council thinking about alternative methods than just having an aggressive scorpion unit with a warrior mentality, we, studies have shown that when officers show up with that warrior mentality, increased incidents of violence and civilians 
is likely. So I think that it should have been a broader, holistic approach. Um, and that's what people are talking about when they talk about police reform, is that it's not just give more funding to the police department. It's actually providing funding to social services and communities to do earlier interventions on violence and not it, the police officers not be the backstop to prevent crime in communities. For sure. I mean, also, and one last thing about the, the pursuit syndrome. When, some, when you pull somebody over for whatever, a busted taillight, if that is, in fact, not just a pretense, and they run, who cares? Why are you chasing? Why, why are so many, so many police officers chasing them? I mean, they, you don't even the, see that they're not armed. I mean, you know. One of the key problems with this story yeah. is nobody can really tell you. The predicate for pulling him over. I know. The predicate for pulling him over or what the charge was going to be. Yeah. Um, yes, Right. Um, it, it's a story that lacks a beginning. That's a great point. Ten seconds. It's all about culture in policing. I was told early, when I was in charge of a, a lot of police officers, I would write out all these policies. We have to do things this way, this way. It wasn't working. And someone said to me, culture eats policy for lunch when it comes to policing. I always remember that. It's all about the culture within the department. Thank you all for this conversation. Meanwhile, what would it be like to sit in pitch black darkness for four days and four nights? Well, one NFL player is about to do exactly that. We'll tell you who and why next. One of the NFL's most decorated quarterbacks plans to sit in the dark for four days and four nights. MVP Aaron Rodgers is with the Green Bay Packers for the moment, and he's trying to figure out if he's going to play next year or retire, and here's how he's going to do it. It's four nights of uh, complete uh, darkness. And I locked in. No, you can you can leave if you if you you know you can't do it. You can just walk out the door. But it's uh, it's a darkness retreat. I wonder what that would be like sitting in the darkness, a darkness <laughs> retreat like that. Just kidding. <laughs> I, I said just kidding. Guys. Okay, <laughs> let's bring in Ben Court, executive editor of Men's Health, who has interviewed Aaron Rodgers about his unique health journey. We also have with us John Miller, Ashley Allison, and Ellie Honig. Okay, so um, Ben, uh, why does do you have any idea why Aaron Rodgers wants to do this? I think you know he's um, the kind of person who wants to understand himself really well. Um, and in the past, he's kind of expl- like made that journey um, to himself, um, taking psychedelics and that kind of thing. And I think this is kind of another. This is a way to do to have that kind of sort of inner quest um, without drugs and kind of um, you know spend a serious amount of time really kind of depriving your senses so you can kind of get to your kind of core beliefs. So I feel like he's a, a very curious. Um, deliberate person and this is a big decision um and so he's kind of taking it seriously for sure um it's fascinating and it sounds a lot better than some other things he's tried first of all i mean the ayahuasca trips sound like the best that's that seems like the the best option for my money (laughs) that was in 2020 and 2022 he did ayahuasca trips then in 2022 he did a 12-day ghee like a clarified butter and laxative cleanse that one sounds like the least appealing. And now he wants to do this four-day darkness retreat. And Ben, let me just read to you what the um, a darkness retreat owner describes it as. The dark retreat is nothing else than a room that's hermetically locked, and therefore there is no light source able to come inside, and therefore the eyes, open or closed, will never adjust. And that's something we have never experienced except when we were in the womb of our mothers. So it's this returning or coming home to that place of nourishment 
that place of deep healing and deep love. And so do you think that he is going there to decide his future? Um, I don't think he's going to come out with a decision, but I feel like um, in our interview, he talked a lot about kind of surrendering just to kind of to, to he felt he had to surrender in some ways on those ayahuasca journeys to kind of get to some inner core understanding of himself. And so I think he's hoping um, that he'll he'll this experience will somehow um, help him make a better decision. And it's, it's interesting. I think I've heard him talk about this kind of thing, too, as almost being like a cocoon kind of experience. So we think of darkness as being negative. But in some ways, obviously, he's hoping it's going to. Um, illuminate something for him for sure. Poetic. That is really fascinating. Okay, panel. How many of you guys want to do a four-day darkness retreat? Oh, I'm intensely jealous. It sounds great. Are you kidding? I mean, I would probably bail out after four hours, mm-hmm. but the idea of the peacefulness that must happen, I have some questions like, how do you eat and how does the bathroom work? Oh, I can work? tell you how. I don't know how the bathroom works, but I can tell you they, they put uh, your food through a slot in the door, a la jail. Okay. They slip it through. But I don't know how you eat when you're in the dark, you like you're just your, your body can adjust quickly when it has to. I mean, I will say, call me the hippie on the panel. Yeah, go. But a lot of these practices are indigenous uh, practices that our ancestors use. The Mayans go in sweat lodges that are completely black, and those they're called tezmacals. And I've done one, and you go in and you do you and your anxiety, but it forces you to really. Let go of the outside world. Let go of these How phones. long were you in there for? Four hours. Four hours in darkness and sweating? And sweating. And it was a lot. Oh, okay? I'm sweating right now. But it was a beautiful <laughs> experience. And people sit in these experiences for a very long time. And our ancestors did them to get clarity of mind. And so this darkness retreat, people go on si- uh, quiet retreats where they don't talk for 12 days. And it's not because they aren't around people, but it's about discipline and really clearing your mind. So, I, I mean, I'm not like on Aaron Rodgers' bandwagon, but I, I do understand some of the benefits of these. I like that perspective a lot. Again, I just go back to the ayahuasca seems easier. Um, John, <laughs> you, does this appeal to you? So it has a certain appeal. I mean, when you live the way we live, minute to minute, on the phone, text message, the news desk is calling, there's a problem over here, there's an emergency, it's ringing in the middle of the night, and you're trying to think thoughts. The idea of Completely clearing your mind, completely clearing your thoughts, having visions and epiphanies and sensory deprivation, which becomes sensory awakening, actually has some appeal. My question is, I mean, he's got a decision to make. If he comes out of four days of darkness and throws open the door and sees his shadow and then goes back inside, <laughs> do we have six more weeks of winter, which is going to affect more people than the Packers? <laughs> That's, those are all excellent questions. Well, listen, you've opened my mind to it, but I don't know, know that I need four days of it. I mean, like, I, I might just need four hours Yeah, I think that would do it. I'm, I'm out on the yeah. silence uh, retreat. Uh, uh, Forget uh, it. Uh, I can't uh, do that. Uh, but, I mean, this uh, kind of uh, makes me respect Aaron Rodgers more. I know he's, he's become yeah. a little bit of a heel mm-hmm. in the NFL, but... For lack of a better term, it's cool to me that he's willing to try these unusual things, especially in the NFL, which tends to be very conformist and challenge himself and push himself. So God bless. I hear you. Um, Ben Court, thank you very much for all the information and for sharing your reporting with us. Thank you very much, guys. Great to be with you tonight. But we do have some news that is just in. Senator John Fetterman was admitted to a D.C. hospital today after feeling lightheaded. This is according to a spokesperson. There is no evidence of a new stroke but he is being kept overnight for observation and more tests. We obviously will stay on that and bring you anything that develops. 
Thanks so much for watching tonight. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.